Good evening. First Samuel chapter five, continuing our series. And chapters five and six are kind of parenthetical chapters. I think I said that right. It's kind of a parenthesis. There's this little aside that takes place in these two chapters as we find that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken captive by the Philistines as was talked about last week. And just to touch on a little bit of what happened last week, if you need a Bible, anyone else need a Bible? You know, the Israelites thought by bringing it, the Ark, to the battle, they could become victorious, but they didn't bring him to the battle. Or they went to it, the ark, but they didn't go to him, the Lord. And Michael touched on that beautifully last week, even as he tried to relate those things to us today, how many people will go to church and think that church is the it that we need to go to, but can go to church and not go to him. And even as he talked about that anathema, you know, that the, or an, what is it? Ichabod. That was it. Ichabod Crane. Remember that? That's what I, I never knew what that word meant until, you know, re- realized the glory has departed. And so, again, he, he covered beautifully just that last chapter that leads into this, again, parenthesis of these two chapters. What led to the captivity of the ark? And these chapters are, are pretty interesting, at least I thought so, and I hope you guys think so too. So let's start reading in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back up in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, Neither the priest of Dagon nor the others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod's step on the threshold. So, the ark goes into the city of Ebenezer. This is a victorious time for the Philistines. So they bring this ark, which is basically the Hebrews' god in their mind, and they take it into their temple, Dagon. Dagon was a god that was, the top half was a man, his torso, he had arms, and the bottom half was a fish. And he's actually the father of Baal, and it was an Assyrian god as well that they would worship. And so they bring them into Dagon's temple, and they set this down in front of Dagon's temple. It's kind of there, yes, now the Israelites' god is now in our possession, and we are in control. And then it's the battle of the gods that takes place in the Dagon temple. They go in, and, and there's the, the Dagon god toppled on its face. And they're like, Doggone it, Dagon, get up. And they they put him back up. Sorry, I couldn't resist it. And 
they put him back up and you know it's it's a sad thing when you have to fix your god it's a pathetic god that has need of human help to maintain dignity but that's exactly what happened and so they like okay let's get him back up and they put him back up and then the next time not only is he toppled over but the head is broken off and the hands are broken off and now there's just this stub of a fish that's there and they're thinking oh my gosh what's going on and this story they they tell about it and they talk about the head and the hands falling on the threshold and out of respect for their do- their god Dagon they now don't step on that because the threshold is basically where the feet would go and that's something that you would trample upon and so it's something that is looked down upon. Even in the Middle East today, if you take your shoe off and you hit someone with it, it's a disgrace because it's like the sole of your feet, it's beneath you. And so now out of respect, because Dagon's head and hands were there, they step over it, still showing this God respect even though this God has fallen and he can't get up. He's broken before them. Now, I want to ask you something, because our focus determines how we will interpret things. And it's real important that our focus about who God is is clear, so that as we move forward, especially in these two chapters, we have the right understanding about the character of God. It's so funny sometimes I'll I'll post things on Facebook and that's not the funny part, but what's funny is the reactions you get from things. And I posted a video today and it was this inspirational video about this guy who was kind of crippled and he couldn't walk and he's had a brace on his legs and his hands, and he he was a vet from the Gulf War, and too many parachute jumps had caused him to be just uh, injured and just needed rehabilitation, but he'd gain a lot of weight, and the doctor said, it's impossible that you'll ever walk without help. Did any of you guys see that video? Some of you posted that? Thank you guys for your Facebook support. Um <laughs> Anyway, and so the video goes on and it talks about this guy. He looks like a drill sergeant or something. He's a yoga instructor. And he looked at this guy and he said, how can I help this guy? And he invested in this guy. And through 10 months, the guy lost 140 pounds, was able to walk. And then at the end, he actually shows him running, this guy. It's, it's one of those right here. It's so touching. You know, I mean, it's just a neat video. Neat video. And, and then the responses come. You know, one of my friends responds, oh, praise God for healing. And then my niece, who's into yoga, is, is she posted on her wall, and isn't it amazing what yoga can do to the body and mind? You know, and everyone coming from their perspective is seeing this and interpreting it based on their perspective. And we do that with the scriptures many times. And if we're not careful, sometimes the view that we present can be a little bit skewed. And our thoughts about who God is and how he's doing things can come off in the wrong way. And so I want to challenge ourselves and talk about this a little bit more. What do you think this means 
what happens when the ark goes into the temple of Dagon and Dagon falls once, falls twice, and is smashed. What is your interpretation of that? Okay. Any other thoughts on what this means, why this little incident is recorded? How about this? Why do you think this happened and who was this intended for? Turn with me, keeping those thoughts in mind, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. Because that's how this kind of comes about. It's kind of the battle of the gods here. The Israelite God, the Ark of the Covenant against Dagon, the fish man God. And then the Israelite God wins and, and this God loses, so my God's better than your God. But who is God trying? trying, what is God trying to convey and who is he trying to convey it to? And and I think this is an important question to ask as we go through the scriptures. I touched on this scripture a lot. It's one of my favorite. You guys probably have heard it before, but in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, as Solomon is dedicating the temple, this is in the future, this is where the ark is going to dwell After it's built, they're going to have the holies of holies and all this. And in verse 41, he says, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distance and because of your name. This would include Philistines. For they they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outreached arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear... From heaven, your dwelling place, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Solomon's prayer was that the foreigner would pray to the true and living God and that he would answer and prove himself to be God to them. And you see, I think that God is always trying to reveal himself to people. I think it is God's desire that all come to the knowledge of who he is. All would repent and believe that he's not willing that any should perish. And in that frame of mind, when this takes place, it's not like God's going to say, I'll show you God is saying, I need to show you. Your God is nothing, but I am something. And I believe if we have this frame of mind, we see throughout Scripture the character of God is always trying to reach and reveal. That God is always trying to be inclusive and not exclusive. So it's not like my God is better than your God It's there's only one God and believing in anything less than that is harmful to you. It's foolish to you. It's beneficial for you to believe in me. Not because I'm stronger. It's because there is no one else. And so through this incident, I believe God is making a point, yeah, it comes across, yeah, this God's better, but it's really, your God, he's no God at all. But it didn't stop them. It said in verse 5 that they continued to step over 
the threshold because they didn't want, you know, to disgrace where Dagon's head and hands fell. And, and so they're still trying to show reverence to him. And it goes on that it doesn't stop there. This kind of spanking, I guess we can call it, continues. In verse 6, it says, The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. Now, we have to stop here, and I have to tell you what the word tumors means. The word tumors means hemorrhoids. Okay, it does. The translations are being nice. They're trying to say tumors. In Kyle and Dalich's commentary, they said boils on the hinder side. Okay, that's what it. That's what's happening. So every time you see that word tumor, have that in your mind. Um, verse seven: When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said. The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and our, on Dagon, our God. Yeah, he just crushed him and now look what's happening to us. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. And they moved it to Gath, possibly because there was no temple of Dagon there. They thought, well, maybe if we separate the two gods, they'll stop fighting. That's one of the ideas. Verse 9, but after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark, I'm just going to use the word tumors because it's nicer, but you know what it means. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried, they have brought the ark of God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the country, or the outcry of the city, went up to heaven. Now, God's hand was heavy upon the people. Again, I want to ask the question, and again, I want to look from a vantage point of God trying to reach people, what's going on here? Why would God do this? Any thoughts? The people were not turning to God. They were continuing their own worship. The scriptures tell us that those who the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines. And the word that's used In Hebrews, when it says he scourges every son that he received, it means he whips. It's a harsh term, means it brings physical pain to those who he's trying to lead. And we've talked about that through our book of Lamentations, A Good Cry, that many times it is through the physical ailments that we actually open our eyes. 
And so what God is doing is his hand is heavy. And Lola, you mentioned too, Egypt and the plagues. The plagues of Egypt were not just so that the people could go. They were to reveal who God was. And remember, when they left Egypt, there was a lot of people who left with them who were from Egypt because they saw the God of Israel and they wanted to go and leave with him. And so I believe God is pressing this point even further making it known and so that people cannot ignore that there is a difference between what you've been worshiping that does nothing and the true and living God, which can do something. And if you will refuse to acknowledge the true and living God, then he's going to be a pain in the butt. You don't ignore the true and living God. He's letting them know, I'm not going to just be tolerated. You're not going to ignore me. You're not going to... My wife looked at me horrified right now. Uh, You're not going to disregard who I am. You, You cannot get away with just ignoring me. And he's pressing the point and his hand is heavy upon them. He's forcing them to deal with him because the ark represents his presence. It represents, again, the God of Israel. And and the ark is such an interesting thing in and of itself. Inside the ark, Michael talked about as well, was the commandments of God, the righteous standard of God, the rod of Aaron that budded even though it was cut off, the the miraculous things, the manna that God had provided, these things that were there, symbols of God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And then on top of that, covering it, was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is an interesting thing because the command of God is that you will make no image in heaven or earth, no graven image of anything in heaven or in earth. But on the top of the mercy seat was a graven image of two angels facing each other with their wings towards each other. But you're not supposed to do that. But mercy covers the law. And so the ark in itself is just an amazing thing. And mercy always covers the law of God. And so here is this representation of the God of Israel, and God is pushing the point home. I am real. You can't ignore me. And he's not allowing himself to be ignored in these people. And they have opportunity in how they respond. Are they going to say, you know what? This God's real. That God that we had to put back up, that's not real. Which one are we going to believe? Which one are we going to serve? And God is always revealing himself in this way. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. Another favorite passage of mine. You guys are familiar with the story of Naaman, a commander of the army of the Syrians. And Naaman has leprosy, and in his household there is a, a 
little servant girl who was probably taken captive in one of their raids into Israel, and she is now one of the slaves in his household. And so there in Naaman's household, this little Israel girl says, you know, there is a prophet in Israel who can help you with leprosy, which no one could help with. And so Naaman goes to the king and he says, hey, king, there's a prophet in Israel that they say can bring healing Will you allow me to go? And the king says, of course. You are the commander of my armies. You are a great man. So the king sends out a letter out to the king of Israel, telling him, hey, I'm going to send out my general here, and he's going to go out, and I want you to heal him so that you can help him. And so as this goes, the king in Israel says, are you trying to start a war with me? You see, the king of Israel didn't believe that God could heal, but the king over in Syria said, well, yeah, let's send him to their God. Maybe he can heal. And the story goes on. So Naaman goes and he finds the prophet. The prophet won't even come outside to talk to him. He sends his servant out and his servant you know, tells him what the prophet says. He says to go down to the Jordan and dip yourself seven times. And Naaman says, what? Aren't there better rivers for us to bathe in that we got to go down to this little mud pit, the Jordan? I'm not going to do that. And as Naaman's walking away irate, his servant says, Master, if he had asked you to do something great, would you have done it? He's only asked you to dip in the Jordan River seven times. Why not do it? And so Naaman goes and he dips in the Jordan seven times. Then he comes out and it says his skin was clean like that of a young boy which is completely restored. And so Naaman goes back to the prophet and he desires to give him all these things. And let's take it, verse 15 of chapter 5. The Naaman and all the attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord." And so Naaman has this encounter, he is healed, he has brought health to his body, and he says, there is only one God, I will only make sacrifice to the one God. And the reason he carries the earth is because he thought that the ground here is God's ground, this is holy ground, I want to take as much of what I can with God with me back to Syria so that I can worship God on his own ground. It was just the way he thought in his superstitious thinking. And so he asks that this be able to be done. In verse 18, He says, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. In other words, when I have to go into this temple of this foreign god, this Rimon, might as well be Dagon, it's just another god. It is not the Lord. It is not the one true God. When I go in there and I bow down, 
I don't mean any injustice to the true and living God. May God forgive me because I am not bowing down in my heart. And the prophet says, go in peace. And he lets him go. And the point I want to make here is even in our superstition, God is revealing the truth of who he is and tolerates our misconceptions. The prophet doesn't say, no, no, put the dirt down. God doesn't, he doesn't go on, give him a discourse on the theology of how to worship God. It's not the dirt. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when he says, if I bow, no, no, don't bow your knee to anybody, otherwise that's it. He trusts that this encounter with God has changed this man and God will deal with him. And he says, go in peace. God has got a hold of you. And even in his superstition, God has touched and revealed himself. Isn't that what Paul talks about in Acts chapter 17? You have made this unknown God there in Athens. I've come to make him know that which you worship in ignorance. I've come to make known to you. In him we live and move and have our being as your own poets have said. We are his offspring. And he takes their beliefs and he tries to bring the clarity of the truth of God to them right where they are. And this is how God deals with us, as he deals with us right where we are. He dealt with the Hebrew people where they were. He's going to deal with the Philistines where they are. He's going to deal with us where we are to reveal who he is so that we can come to a realization of the true and living God, that we will stop worshiping what is just superstition. But what God does is he pushes us and he pushes us towards the truth until the hands are broken, the head is broken, and we realize I can't worship that any longer. That's not the truth. And so God is revealing these things, I believe, to try and once again reveal himself to the Philistines. I believe this because this is what we see the character of God is throughout Scripture. And if we lose that sight and perspective, we will think that God is being antagonistic, that he is trying to just cause harm to these people and just annoy them. And it is almost humorous, you know, looking back all these years and it not being us, we could say, oh, that's kind of funny. But it was for a purpose. Chapter 6 goes on. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Now, this is interesting because they use a different word for the Lord. The other times they're saying the God of Israel, and it's in a lower case. It's not. It's like one of many gods, but now it is being specific. This Lord Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, 
Send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed. And you will know why this hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked him, what guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors. (laughs) Yep, that's the word, five gold hemorrhoids. And five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? And and so here their own diviners, their own priests are sought for advice. How do we deal with these plagues? And they come up with this idea. Now it's curious because we see that they have some knowledge of Israel's belief. A guilt offering, it's talked about in Leviticus. And here it's mentioned how the Pharaoh hardened his heart in Egypt and didn't let the people go. And so they had some awareness of some of the beliefs that the Israelites had. Now, the offering, that was something else. That was kind of on their own. And the reason they offered the five was for the five main cities and their rulers. And the reason they believed that rats were included is because it is thought that this plague was a type of bubonic plague that was actually there with the people dying and the rats, rodents being dead also, that the plague was being spread through them. And so they thought, well, if we get the tumors and the rats and send them as an offering, maybe this God will leave us alone. Because they have this guilt offering and we've got this guilt and let's not harden our hearts like Pharaoh did. And so they came up with this idea, we're going to send these things out to them. And here's their idea, their great plan, verse 7. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but all that happened to us by chance. Now, why are they saying this? What is this happening here? Any thoughts on why they make this elaborate thing? Are they just out of their top of their head saying, get a couple cows? And there's a couple things they've done. They've gotten cows that have never been yoked. That means these cows have never had anything on their head. Usually the first time a cow would have something like that, they'd freak out. They'd start to want to get it off. Like, what is this? They also had calves. And they took the calves away from the cows and they penned them. A cow would not leave its calf. And so the idea is it'll turn back to the calf because that's where its calves are. So if it doesn't freak out with the yoke and it doesn't turn back towards the calves, but it actually just walks towards Israel, okay, then it was God's hand. 
Otherwise, if it comes back to its calves, okay, it wasn't God. And what they're doing is saying, God, prove it. Prove it. Keep in mind Solomon's prayer. God, if this foreigner will look towards you and pray, whatever they ask, answer that they might know that you are the Lord. Would God want to answer this kind of superstition? Let's see. (laughs) Verse 10. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. I have no idea what that looks like. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. They went all the way just like they were supposed to. And again, I want to submit this idea that through all of this, God is dealing with the Philistine people, revealing the truth of who he is, even through their superstition. Because he wants them to know the truth. Even though it's done in such a strange way. Such an unusual thing. And so many times we can get so regimented and structured in our worship, how it's supposed to be. And when you go to another country and you find out someone who's barely come to know the Lord and they start worshiping God and it seems a little unorthodox and they've got a little bit of their old belief in there, you you might be real tempted to just go and squash all of that. But you know what? They're trying to get to the truth. And God is trying to pull them to the truth. And he will do like he does with us. He'll start cutting away the things that need to be cut away. He'll start stripping us of the lies and the things that maybe we've held on to that aren't true. You ever wonder about our beliefs and our traditions? Like Christmas or Easter? They're not Christian holidays. That's another story. What? What? (laughs) So, verse 13. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and make sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. 
And so now the cows make it here, the ark, they see it, they rejoice. The Levites come because they're the only ones who are supposed to handle the ark. And so now the ark is being taken and they're, it's back in its hometown or country. And the people start offering to the Lord sacrifices, the cows. Hey, we've got the cart. We've got the cows. We've got offering. We've got these gold things too. Oh, I'll put those on the rock. And they have this time where they're worshiping the Lord. And now the Philistines who saw this, they left. And I just wonder what they left with in their head. See, because God is always working. God is always working. And there isn't a single person he isn't trying to reach. And so these Philistines go back and they're going to say, it worked, it was God, and they're having a good time now. And I don't think they have any tumors. I I I think it's gone. Verse 17. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers. The fortified towns with the country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kerioth Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. Verse 1, it says, So the men of Kerath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house. Sorry, too many B's and D's there. On the hill of the consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kerath Jerem. A long time, 20 years in all. And so now the ark makes it back, and then God strikes down some of the inhabitants because they looked in the ark. They were curious. They wanted to see. Maybe they wanted to see if everything was still in there. We don't know, but they weren't supposed to. And we see a judgment falls on the people because they should have known better. This was the people who knew and were responsible for what they knew. And God will always hold us responsible for what we know. To whom much is given, much is required. If you have a lot of knowledge about these things of God, then you're accountable for the knowledge you have. And so they were struck down because of this knowledge. And the seven or the... Amount of people, I know that there are some translations that'll say 50,000 and 70. Um, they believe it's in a town of 50,000, 70 were die, died. That's what one interpretation is that seems to be accepted. Um, but they were held accountable for what they knew. And so even though the ark was back, 
God still will be revered. He'll, he'll still be respected. He still wants people to recognize who he is. And he still holds us accountable for the truth that we have been given. And these 70 who were part of this, who went in to check it out, God said, no, you need to respect me too. This represents my presence, and if you won't deal with it correctly, then I'll have to deal with you. And he did. And so then they send the ark away, and again, it's in this place for 20 years, and it's some time before it actually gets back to Jerusalem and into the temple um, in David's reign, which is going to be a while, and there's a lot of thoughts on why that happened. Um, it's just amazing that here is the heart of what is worship in Israel, and it's on a cart, and it's in these small villages, and the people recognize it, but they sure don't know what to do with it. And I think sometimes that's uh, true for us as well. You know, we recognize God is with us, but now what do I do with him? What do I do with this truth that he knows? Isn't it supposed to go somewhere? And what do I do when it just stays here in our city? It's kind of terrifying. The ark's here. It killed people in the other country. 70 died over here. What do we do? What do we do with it? I don't know. It has this ability to affect us. And that's exactly what God does, is he has the ability to actually change our lives and affect how we live and what we do. And sometimes that's a terrifying thing because sometimes we don't necessarily want to be changed. And it's a difficult thing to stand in the presence of God knowing that there is this power, the ability to heal, the ability to kill. This life that I live is now under his control. What does he want? And all those questions and all those thoughts that actually push us sometimes where we need to go. What do you want from me, God? What, now that you're here, what are we supposed to do? And that's something that I think is a good question to ask. Any thoughts on these two chapters? Things that stand out to you? Nope, nada. Okay. So I'm going to leave this one alone. Let's pray. Father, I, I do pray that there are lessons for us to learn through the things that we've read. I, I know there are. God, what are you doing? What are you wanting to work in the lives of, of everyone who we've read about? And, and as importantly, what are you trying to do in our lives? How is this supposed to impact us? And I pray that it would. I pray that your presence would be a force that we reckon with, that we would recognize that in you is life and you have the ability, Lord, to bring health and to bring affliction and to change the course of life itself for us. 
And you do all these things to bring us to a deeper realization of who you are. That at the core, your intention is not harm, but is revelation. Your intention is to bring an understanding and a relationship between people and you, even foreigners, even those who worship Dagon, even those who have formerly bowed the knee to Rimon, you you are always revealing yourself. And Lord, as you do, may we recognize it as your revelation comes to us by your spirit and through the scriptures. May we see those areas and may they be exposed that need to be put away in our lives. May we not hold on to traditions. Even as Michael talked about last week, may we never put up on our door that your glory has left. May it never be Ichabod. And so expose those things that are detrimental to our relationship with you and lead us however necessary, to a revelation clearer who you are. And we do ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.